Hello and welcome to another episode of At Any Rate. I'm your host, Natasha Kanova, Head of Commodities Research at JP Morgan. And today we want to talk about industrial and precious metals. I'm joined today by my colleague, Greg Shearer, who heads our commodities metals research. Uh, Greg, welcome. Thanks, Natasha. Uh, Greg, uh, with nearly all base metals inventories running very low, every month seems to be bringing fresh concerns of supply securities for different metal. Yes, we first started with copper, then of course all the nickel headlines, uh, then aluminum, and now the latest developments in, in the zinc market. Uh, can you run us please through where we stand on inventories and which markets in your opinion look most concerning from an inventory perspective? Yeah, thanks Natasha. And I mean, I think it's it, you're exactly right when you frame it that it seems like each month brings in a new metal. And I, I think maybe we'll start with the one that's the flavor of the month, which is zinc. Um, we've seen something, you know, we think European smelter closures here are running about 100 KMT uh, or, or, or smelter losses rather are running about 100 KMT of losses a quarter at the moment, uh, inclusive of, of reduced utilization, which has led to a very significant tightening in the zinc market. Um, you know, overall, we have something around a 320 KMT deficit currently forecasted. Now, why that's important um, is because when we look at ab available inventories, uh, things are running very low. I mean, if we look at the LME right now, on warrant LME stocks uh, for zinc are at about uh, 45 KMT. Um, and from that perspective, total inventory outside of China is running at about six days of demand coverage, close to the lowest that we've seen um, you know, basically in 2019, 2020, and before that, right, right at the peak of the super cycle, right, uh, you know, before 2008. Um, so zinc, I think, is definitely quite concerning. Now, the one thing that could in the near term temporarily help rest of world uh, supply is actually Chinese exports. So both zinc and aluminum at the moment are very divided markets between China and the rest of the world. Uh, if we look at the rest of the world, we're talking about supply risks, we're talking about still resilient demand, we're talking about inventories running low, premium spiking, um, everything just looks exceptionally tight. And you almost see the exact opposite in both of these markets in China. Um, you know, if we look at zinc, for instance, the the prices are so weak in domestic, uh, domestically in China that now zinc is is being incentivized to be exported from China, which is uh, for a country that is structurally net short zinc quite exceptional. And we're seeing that both through just exceptionally weak demand being aided by, you know, COVID lockdowns that have really kept things quite depressed here. Um, but, you know, these exports to the rest of the world, we should, I think, expect to see a bit of it in the near term. However, that's, that's a near term salve, right? That's not going to be, that's not going to solve this whole process. And so from that perspective, I do think zinc is concerning in that if we continue to see this tightness come about and prices push even higher from here, we are getting into a place where zinc prices, I think, will be damaged on a long-term basis because, because of demand destruction. Um, if we look at it relative to other metals, uh, you're now getting to a point where, particularly versus aluminum, you're seeing uh, us enter into a zone where, where I would get concerned about substitution. Now, the other metals, um, I would say aluminum is, to me, 
you know, I was saying similar story as we see in zinc and that you have this quite, you know, bifurcated market between China and the rest of the world. I'm somewhat less concerned on the, the overall inventory level. And I'm, I do think that China, for instance, a looser market in China is a much bigger deal for potentially bridging the gap of tightness in aluminum. Um, and why I say that is because if we look at the zinc market, even uh, this year with pretty reduced uh, estimates for Chinese demand growth, we still think that China needs something like 400 KMT of imports of zinc. Um, on the other hand, uh, what's happened in the last few years on the primary aluminum side is that China has shifted to a, a sometimes net importer, but it still has massive uh, you know, production of its own. And so if the domestic market is very, very loose in China on the aluminum side, that is eventually going to feed through to boosted semi-fabricated exports to the rest of the world, which then allows for a bit more of an easing in the tightness that we see coming forward. But I mean, when we look at aluminum coverage, for instance, outside of China, you are still talking about something like only eight days of demand coverage on exchange. Um, that is, is, is very, very low. I mean, just to put that in perspective, mm -hmm. about a year ago, we were sitting at 24 days of coverage. Um, and, and so there is a lot to be done there on the aluminum side. And then I think finally, you know, just quickly on, on copper and, and, and nickel. Um, copper, for instance, is, is difference between China and the rest of the world is, is there, but in a different manner. And why I say that is because copper is the one where you start to look at the SRB stocks, the SRB, you know, we still think holds over about two and a half million tons of copper in China. That means that when we look at global inventory days, you're sitting at about, you know, inclusive of the uh, strategic reserve, something around 50 uh, days of coverage, but outside of China, you're sitting at about six days of coverage. So nice. China's sitting here on a lot of copper, but the rest of the world's still quite tight. Copper is the one where we're not seeing the, 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 the refined supply come under as much immense pressure as we're seeing in aluminum zinc. So that keeps me a little bit less concerned. I think, you know, there's reports of still some significant inventory of copper being stranded in the likes of Africa. If we can see a bit of a supply chain um, deep bottlenecking and that eventually makes its way into to China, I think that will help with some, some of the senses of supply security here. And then I think on nickel, most of the focus right now is really squarely on how quickly uh, and what magnitude NPI to mat switching in Indonesia will come in. Um, because that's essentially what we need to see to begin to square this circle of extreme class one tightness. If that NPI to mat switching, which we have in our balances coming in to about 80 to 90,000 metric tons over the course of this year um, comes in stronger than that, that allows to, you know, that then goes on to feed Chinese battery demand and, and kind of lets up China's pull of class one metal from the rest of the world. Um, and, and that's quite essential. And I think when we look at Indonesia over the next few years, that, you know, roughly 80 to 90 KMT of, of capacity, what's in the pipeline could be potentially another uh, you know, could could come to a cumulative total of about 300 kmt of of capacity, which is quite sizable for the nickel market. So, I'm I'm saying I think when I look at it, it it all comes. That's a very black box area, but we are hearing about you know pretty quick progress in ramping up this NPI to mat. 
which uh, you know should deliver a bit of a looser nickel market as we look into the back half of this year. But for now, um, still very tight on the nickel side. If we look on a global inventory uh, days of use, you're still talking about something like 10 days currently uh, relative to about 40 days mm -hmm. just a year ago. So a mm -hmm. pretty dramatic uh, drop. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Um, so, Greg, um, moving to the precious metal sector. So, clearly, the latest news we've seen, especially in the metals that have a very strong exposure to Russia, like platinum and palladium, um, security, supply security risk, yes, have again, you know, flared up uh, with the London platinum and palladium market suspending Russia's two accredited uh, platinum or PGM refineries. Um, so, in your opinion, how impactful will this be to the supply chains for platinum and palladium? Uh, and especially if you can link it, what what the implications are for the for the automakers? Yeah. Well, the first thing is, um, I think the, you know where we're, how we first have to start is that a majority of the production from Russia is never going to go through the LPPM, so the London Platinum and Palladium market, so the the London local market, right? There, that's not a stop on the supply chain. What my initial fears were was if we see this either from a, you know, being these, these two refineries being suspended uh, and their sponge accreditation also being stripped, would that lead to more widespread self-sanctioning among, you know, OEMs and automakers downstream? Um, would that essentially, if you, would that mean that they are reluctant to take Russian metal um, and, and really kind of step away from the market, which is quite significant because then, you know, then you're talking about something like 40% uh, uh, of palladium mine production needing to find a, another home almost. Uh, and that would have to, you know, facilitate a major swap where that production goes into China and, you know, South African production is freed up to flow into Europe. You know, logistically, it's not too hard from an air travel perspective, but, uh, you know, volumetrically, we're talking about major shifts of, of supply chains. Now, in the initial, I think that's what we saw in the initial price response was saying, oh, is this going to trigger a lot of self-sanctioning from Europe? And that's kind of, you know, drove last Friday about a 10% jump in, in palladium prices. Um, what we've seen since then is it looks like it's, it's a bit less impactful than maybe initially feared in that some of the major uh, consumers have actually come out and stated that they are still receiving Russian metal at this time, um, that it doesn't look like there has been a, a ratcheting up and self-sanctioning uh, immediately. So things are still flowing. Um, that's kind of where we stand now. And I think the market's in a bit of a tense standoff right now. Now, I think there's two interesting points, both on the fundamentals and then both when we could maybe see self-sanctioning in metals more broadly that, that we would say. So, you know, really quickly here on the point, um, we're seeing Russian supply still flow. Beyond that, uh, you know, when this could come into a, a head would be when we see annual contracts being renegotiated, which in our view is something that would be happening in late 3Q or into early 4Q. That's mm -hmm. when we, in particular, we could see uh, much larger self-sanctioning across metals and, and a bit of a, a, a disruption across the supply chain. 
Mm -hmm. Thank you, Greg. So staying on the precious metals, uh, let's move to gold. So gold prices have been stuck within this very narrow 3% range. Uh, at the same time, the, you know, clearly we're trading above 1900s elevated levels, especially considering where the, the use real yields are. So from your perspective, what flows do we see uh, that, that are helping to prop up gold in those levels? And uh, do you think that you know, gold prices will revert back to this fundamental, their fundamentals trading in line with the U.S. real yields anytime soon. Yeah, so we've clearly seen a, a pretty strong inflow of ETF ounces. Uh, we started the year around 98 million uh, ounces of total ETF holdings. We're now sitting at about 106, 100, uh, nearly 107 million. Um, and that has dramatically increased over the course of March. Um, What's driving it? Well, we're clearly seeing gold trading much more on a long-term, uh, on its appeal as a long-term inflation hedge, a diversify, you know, a diversifier for your portfolio, as well as its safe haven among, you know, the geopolitical geopolitical stressors that mm -hmm. we're seeing continue to 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 run pretty rampant here. Um, what you know, to put some numbers around that, essentially, in the the last month, gold has shrugged off something like $200 per ounce downside based on what we've seen in, you know, the movements in real yields. So while you look at just the, the gold price itself, it looks like, oh, wow, gold's not doing anything, but it's been exceptionally strong compared to what we think of as its primary driver. You know, for instance, just last month, we were sitting below 100, negative 100 basis points in US 10-year real yields. Today, we're sitting at negative 12 basis points. That's an nice. immense amount of downward pressure on gold's traditional drivers that, that it's basically held firm in. Now, looking forward, we, we need to ask ourselves two things. Will we see an eventual move back towards trading on real yields? And what's our view for real yields going forward? Well, if we start on the view for real yields, we still see upside from here, um, you know, we essentially are our rate strategists continue to look for U.S. 10-year real yields to end 2022 around 20 basis points positive and to move mm -hmm. to about 35 basis points positive by the by the first quarter of 23. Um, so still continued upside there as the, the Fed moves forward and we see a little bit of a flatlining in inflation expectations. And I think from my perspective, for gold to continue to tread water at these really high elevated premium levels, you need to see continued inflows of ETFs. Is that still going to be there if we see inflation come off the boil, if we see geopolitical, you know, geopolitical situation not as uh, in the headlines every day going forward? And I think that's the risk is that gold essentially um, isn't going to have the same boiling inflation and geopolitical risk to keep it quite elevated here. But I do think it's going to take a while to bleed out some of that premium going forward. Mm -hmm. It's just that I, I think in a, in a month's time uh, to, to about, you know, over the course of the second quarter, rather, we should begin to see gold reestablished with some of its more traditional pricing um, mechanisms on U.S. 10-year real yields. And as we see that continue to push higher, um, we do see gold heading, you know, back down towards about the, the mid-1850s this quarter towards 1800 by the third quarter of 2022. Okay, Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, thank you all for listening to the Commodities Edition at the JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. We look forward to continue our conversation next week. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 
2022. JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on April 14th, 2022.